Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, pop culture adapts in the age of COVID-19. Streaming services are the number one choice of pandemic shut-ins. From My Sharona to My Corona, musical parodies provide levity and public health messaging. And Black Twitter rebrands the coronavirus. It's our pop culture roundtable. Later in the show, a little witchcraft couldn't hurt. So believe the Lady Falcons, the heretofore losingest field hockey team in 1980s Danvers, Massachusetts. The new novel, We Ride Upon Sticks, is a cheeky brew of teenage angst, sports nerdism, and towny escapades. It's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me to discuss pop culture and the pandemic, Rachel Rubin, professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Rachel. Hi, Callie. Hi. And Michael Jeffries, associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hi, Michael. Hi, Callie. All right. Well, I want to jump right into you, too, because um, we have had, uh, we three have had a couple of conversations watching the subscription streaming services sort of creep, creep, creep uh, into the worlds of many people, even folks who thought, I'm not going to spend that much money on all of these different uh, subscription services. But we saw that Disney Plus blew that out of the water for some. But now, uh, when the pandemic struck, pop culture all migrated to streaming sites. So, for better or worse, it's just what it is now. Um, what do you guys think about it, Michael? Well, I think it's a pretty big deal, actually, because so many of the old rules seem to be broken about when things were going to be released. You've seen ESPN moving up the release dates for some of its relatively new releases, its docuseries, and the Star Wars thing got moved up. And, of course, people's attention were naturally was naturally kind of migrating to Netflix during this time and Amazon and the other services. But now we've seen that the companies are, are so desperate for, for the revenue stream and to re- maintain attention that they're just doing it at a rate that we haven't ever seen before. And I think the thing we have to, to watch is how do they put this genie back in the bottle? Like once you've done this, right, hmm. once you've bent to audience demand in this way, are you really going to be able to then pull back, right, if, if we return to – a more normal kind of pattern of consumption and start leaving the house more. Our streaming service is just going to allow this kind of instantaneous uh, system that they've, that they've um, instituted. Are they going to allow this to be their new uh, business model? I think it's a really interesting uh, question. And Rachel, you know, one of the reasons, in addition to people being inside, there are no sports going on. That's been canceled. No large events. So uh, then, you know, all, all the places you would have gone to outside, like the movie theaters or, or just theaters, theater theaters, you know, you can't do that, libraries. So, you know, all of it has made people seem to be hungrier for whatever content is, is out there. 
Yes. And, you know, I have very, very mixed feelings about it, you know, because, you know, at the one on the one hand, there are people who are doing things like streaming on Netflix at the same time and video calling their friends about it, you know. Um, but on the other hand, there are smaller artists and venues that are going to be folding as a result of this, like permanently. And, hmm. you, and you know, it, it's just it's just true, you know, and I think that, yeah, that like big big corporations like Netflix are like happily capitalizing off of this situation. Well, and do you agree with Michael that it's going to be hard to put this back into the bottle, this this genie back into the bottle? I absolutely agree with Michael about that. I think that's a really good point to make, you know, that this is going to sort of, it isn't just a pandemic that we're going to get past. It's something that is going to have a completely shaping influence and right. Not just like uh, medically, but culturally as well. Hmm. So a lot of stuff that we'll talk about today um, is related to what one might see either, either on social media or from the streaming services, because that's the world we're living in, in this moment. One of the things that took off is Cardi B. People know her as a rapper, um, uh, who uh, has made her name both in pop culture. Actually, she's migrated a little bit from rap over to pop culture, as it turns out. So she's, you know, quite popular. Uh, she's become a little bit political, and so she makes these sort of random statements on her uh, social media. And she made a little statement a little while back saying to to, to let everybody know how serious the coronavirus was. Um, now, we can't really repeat everything that she says because she likes profanity. But anyway, here's a little bit of something. She said, let me tell you all something. I ain't even going to front. She said, I'm a little scared. And then she went on to say, coronavirus, coronavirus, I'm telling you, the blank is real. The blank is getting real, to be exact. Well, that little phrase uh, got sent all around the web. Everybody picked it up, turned it into memes. And a Brooklyn DJ and producer who goes by the name of DJ Marquez uh, decided he would capitalize on it and made it into a kind of, I guess it's a song, except it's not. It's sort of just repeating what she said, which we can't play. Be that as it may, it's very, very popular, and it looks as though Rachel He's profiting all of this. Now, they claim, or he claims, she didn't have anything to do with it, that he, that the money is going to go to charity. But that's a little shady right now. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, to go, yes, it, it, I find it a little shady. Um, and I find, you know, I think Cardi B, like, she's very, one of the things that she did talk about was who has access to health care, right, for the mm-hmm. coronavirus. Um, and so... I'm I'm kind of fascinated by her because she's very class conscious, you know, even though her career has made her very rich. Um, she advocates for health care for all, you know, she's aware that not everybody has equal access. Um, and, you know, she has said some things that I think are about this that are dubious. Like she made the claim that some celebrities are being paid to say they have coronavirus. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. And, Michael, it's interesting to see who has influence in these times, because um, some people may know, we've talked about it in other venues here uh, on WGBH, that there is a uh, a persistent rumor, because that's all it can be, uh, traveling around in all the social uh, media spaces saying that African-Americans can't get corona. So it's it becomes very important if an African-American can speak to that and speak to it in a way that gets attention. Oh, no question. I mean, I think that one of the things we've seen with Cardi B and all the other celebrities who have released 
public service announcements or just informal statements, made informal statements about this is they are filling what is a massive vacuum in messaging and information that was left by the government and the Trump administration in particular, right? So it becomes especially important now, much too important. They shouldn't be as important as they've been. But because the messaging and the information coming from the highest levels of government has been so poor, folks need celebrities who they recognize and for better or worse, who they trust to tell them about the legitimate danger that we're all facing right now. It's sort of less relevant now because of the uh, measures put in place by state and local governments, and nobody really denies it anymore. But three, four weeks ago, there were still folks really denying the severity of it. And Cardi B and some of her contemporaries have kind of stepped into that open space. Uh, it's a shame that they had to, but I'm certainly glad that they have. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's fascinating to see um, who people will pay attention to about a serious subject so that when somebody like her understands that she can use her platform in a variety of ways, it's interesting to see how they then put it to use. And it seems to me that uh, she's done that more than once. This is about second or third time she's sort of come forward and made a semi-political statement that seems to have resonated with a lot of people. I mean, the other thing I would say about it is you mentioned her, and you, Rachel mentioned it too, her um, interest in politics. This is not a passing interest. I mean, she's talked about wanting to go back to graduate school. She fastens herself a bit of a presidential historian. Um, she's legitimately interested in these issues. So she's not just doing it for popularity. She's doing it because um, she believes she can make a difference and she has a real passion uh, for this stuff. Yes, she does. Makes sense. Something that uh, is it's hard to not notice, that's a lot of fun, but at the same time, the messaging is heavily involved. As you get folks who are trying to get the message out, we, we've got the Dr. Fauci's and the healthcare folks and other the governors, everybody saying, stay inside, and these things are important that you do. Wash your hands, be socially distant, all of that. Okay, so you can hear it, but it's much more interesting if it's in a song. And a lot of people have taken to sort of uh, revamping uh, old classic songs. So here's a little montage of classic songs that have been rewritten with coronavirus lyrics. Is this a fever? Is this just allergies? Caught in a lockdown, no escape from the family. I need toilet paper, toilet paper, toilet paper. I'm out of toilet paper. It's my corona. I need toilet paper. One day more, shopping for online delivery. I'm trying again only to find there's nothing till September time. One day more. Don't touch me. I won't touch you. All right. I have to say, people are extremely clever all the time. And I have been fascinated by how many ways people could get these uh, public health messages into these remixes. Rachel, music is your thing. What do you think about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, very delighted by this um, for numerous reasons. You know, one is that they're like not done by the music industry. They're sort of more folkloric on a personal level. Um, it reminds me of my childhood because there's like a large category of songs. I don't know which I learned 
the union version first from my father or the Christian version first from my mother. Um, but, you know, it's interesting as a historian, the way people rewrite songs and use comedy as a way to cope and um, writing alternative song lyrics is, a, is an important way to do that. So it's like entertaining and sort of uplifting and at the same time, it's usefully instructive. Right. And, and, and people aren't profiting off it. And I'm, 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 I'm kind of delighted by it, actually. You know, someone else's family did a cute video. You can relate to that. It, it's, it's, it's lovely. Gloria Gaynor did a, a little video that she sent out, uh, set to the tune of her, I Will Survive, um, about washing your hands, which is an, a, another example of it. But Michael, where's Weird Al Yankovic? I mean, this is his stock and trade, and he's nowhere to be seen. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> he, he commented that it's, you know, all the people releasing it now, and some are, some of these songs are better than others, and he, he tweeted, "See, it's not so easy, is it, <laughs> to kind of make 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 one make one of these that's actually funny?" But I would just echo, you know, I would just echo what Rachel said, and that, you know, there's so much uh, emphasis, rightly so, placed on the very um, practical things that we have to do to survive what's a very dangerous time in our lives, and we really need not just entertainment but levity in particular uh, to make it to make it through this. We're not going to make it through this if we're just miserable and, and frightened for the next, you know, 12 months, 18 months, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, so we need, uh, before there's a vaccine, so we need um, our entertainers, not just to inform us about the, the dangers of this, um, but to allow us to cope just like they do with the other um, issues and traumatic experiences that, that we may have through their artwork and their performance. Um, I also think it's interesting that you hear the the tune with the remix lyrics and you're like, where is that from? Because it's not always clear and you have to sort of go back to the source to figure out, oh, that's the original song. So in a funny way, you're sort of expanding people's uh, musical repertoire in some way. No question. The other thing that's been happening for me is like, I'll hear the Corona version of it. And it's obviously silly. You know, I, I can I can tell it's silly. But then when you go back and listen to the original, it's like the original is not actually lyrically that much <laughs> better than the Corona version. <laughs> like some of the original lyrics for these songs don't really make that much more sense or don't go together <laughs> any better than the Corona version do. Well, we should also <laughs> mention that there are a number of artists of some name who have taken to the streaming airwaves uh, to do free concerts. So Chris Martin from Coldplay, John Legend, famously with uh, his wife Chrissy Teigen sitting on top of the piano in a towel, Pink, uh, Mandy Moore, Garth Brooks, and his wife Trisha Yearwood did a free concert on Facebook Live, and then I think they're doing one for uh, CBS as well, Elton John, Matt Nathanson, and then Tidal, which is the company that uh, is owned by Jay-Z, is launching a concert series called At Home with Tidal. So here comes the, the commercial aspect of it. Uh, I assume he's charging for that, but maybe he's not. That's not clear. Uh, Jay-Z always charges for Tidal, so I don't, I don't know that that's free. But the other ones have been offered for free to fans and others who may just be getting to know them. And I think it's it's a really uh, quite a treat and delightful. I think it's I think it's also quite a treat and delightful. I'm sort of split down the middle because one of the things I like best about concerts is that it brings people together. Um, 
So in here, the content is really good and it's like really generous of the artists. And, it, you know, by the way, it does show us that musicians should be considered like essential workers at this point because people still need music. Um, but, um, you know, there's like a really important musical scholar named Christopher Small, and he introduced the concept of musicking because he was like trying to show that music was a verb and not a noun you know, that it like brings people together. Um, and people can comment on these, but it's, it's not the same, but I, I still think that it is, you know, it's really important and generous and I kind of, yeah, I, I, I'm happy with it. Michael, one of the things that I, I noted from this is you really have to know how to sing. There are so many people who yeah. are recorded and they don't go on tour per se. You don't really hear them in the raw. These are people with, you know, one instrument, if at all, or just singing a cappella. So if you don't know how to sing, it shows. Yes, yes. I mean, I love that part of it, too. There's, there really is something um, disarming and new about seeing an artist who you've heard on a recorded version so many times, seeing them do it live on Instagram or Facebook. It really does give you um, a different feeling and a different appreciation for their talent. I mean, this is not, you know, this is a, their talent and their craft. I mean, this is not something that they uh, just bumped into by accident, the ability to put on these performances. They've been working at this for, you know, their whole lives to be able to deliver this kind of content. On the flip side, the thing I wanted to raise, maybe Rachel could comment on this, but I, I, I kind of worry that it's just as it's, you know, so beneficial for us to be able to consume this, is it cheapening the product? Like if you can get these live performances now that are, a different kind of concert, a social media concert, for free, essentially, are we going to start to see uh, musicians, especially musicians who, are, who have not yet made it as celebrities, are we going to start to see them exploited even more early mm. in their career by not, you know, generating the kind of revenue that they should for their live performances? Is our live performances more broadly going to be devalued by, by all of this? Because if you can just get it on Instagram and it's better than than the show, why why would a club owner pay the same rate that they'd been paying before all of this content was available for free? That, that's something that I worry about a mm, little bit. I hadn't thought about that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm speaking with our pop culture roundtable guests, Rachel Rubin of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Michael Jeffries of Wellesley College. Okay, y'all. Black Twitter strikes the game. <laughs> So Black Twitter has rebranded the coronavirus as Dat-Rona. Now, let me just say that I, in the last week or so, got a poster for uh, a very serious event, a discussion about the coronavirus, and was somewhat startled to see at the bottom of it, we're going to be talking about the Rona. I was like, the Rona? What happened? When did this happen? So I guess this is all part and parcel, driven by Black Twitter and its ever uh, cleverness. Um I'd love for both of you to react to this. Uh, Rachel, when did you start noticing it? Because I'm, I'm late to this party. Well, I, um, I started noticing it, you know, a few days ago. Uh, my daughter pointed it out to me. And, you know, I feel like it's the way people are creating a sense of community during this period. Yep. Well, that's for sure. It's very Black Twitter. <laughs> Take something and run with it. Uh, Michael, what's your response? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the prime, that's the primary take is like it it because again because the messaging has been so bad. I think from the coming from the top, 
I, th I think we should be very cautious to disparage however any communities are talking about it and spreading the word so long as it's not misinformation. So it's not like, right, it's not like this meme or this hashtag is, uh, is attached to bad information about the virus. As long as that's not the case, we need to continue to spread the word any way that we can with slang, with memes. Uh, with videos, with, with um, the kind of song, the Cardi B song, however we can get the word out. You know, we're at the beginning of this thing, and I think we, we shouldn't underestimate how long it might take to reach uh, communities of people who have other things um, on their minds. So, so any way we can get the word out, I appreciate. Exactly. For people who are unfamiliar with Black Twitter, it's, it's the folks who exist in the space are often quite cutting. Here is uh, one poster uh, reacting to R. Kelly. People know R. Kelly as the guy who's in jail now, um, charged with having molested many underage young women. Uh, R. Kelly has said he wants to get out of jail so that he will not be infected with uh, uh, COVID-19. So this commenter wrote, if it was COVID-15, he'd be okay with it. Ouch! <laughs> oh, God. That's so that is so black Twitter. <laughs> Let me just say that was good. <laughs> All right. Now, we mentioned this a little bit earlier with regard to uh, Cardi B, but there's now sort of a rising response to celebrities who are trying to find a way to, again, use their platform, some in a very positive way. We've we've seen that. We've uh, even referenced it with regard to those musicians who are offering the the free concerts. But there are also some celebrities, I guess, who are trying to relate. And it comes across as tone deaf. Now, one of the biggest incidents um, that this woman just got shut down, Pe people may know Priyanka Chopra. She's now best known, perhaps, for being married to Nick Jonas. Uh, she had someone videotape a picture of herself on her balcony clapping with no one else, not in community with others, as we know, that's now being used in community with people to say, uh, I'm offering support to the healthcare workers who are on the front line. She was just out there by herself, and people sort of lost their minds saying, um, this was just uh, insulting. You know, who does she think she is? Why'd she tape herself doing it? I mean, she doesn't even get what's going on. It was really um, out of line. And likewise, there are a lot of other celebrities who, in their attempt, I guess, to relate are saying, wow, I'm so bored. The one that got me, Rachel and, and Michael, was Geffen, um, who is pretty well known in the music world. He posted a photo last week, I guess, of his yacht with the caption, sunset last night isolated in the Grenadines. People lost their minds. People just lost yes. their minds that how inappropriate that was. No, that I lost <laughs> I lost my mind and I actually I was gonna raise that when you, you know, mentioned, you know, Priyanka Chopra. It's very interesting because, you know, there are a number of videos that people put out there thinking that they're going to bring people together, but instead they emphasize difference in, you know, uh, access people just have very different access to certain required things and I don't know. I, I think that, uh, like medical care, housing, you know, I, I'm, I'm teaching online and our students don't have equal access to internet connectivity, for instance. Um, and so this virus has sort of like emphasized that in, on numerous levels. And I think that celebrity responses is one level. 
I mean, I sometimes think that it, it like is what raises that. And sometimes I think people are able to just sort of like use that to make that point. But either way, right? But either way, yes, she got like really called out for clapping for first responders. With nobody else around. And the thing is, Michael, I've seen a number of celebrities sort of begin a, a public health message by saying, you know, I'm incredibly lucky, I know, because I have food in the house. But there are a number of people who don't have food, again, using their platform to recognize that there is a difference between what they have and what others have. But some of these people just don't seem to get it. Right. I mean, I think I think we would be more receptive to those kinds of statements and performances if it were accompanied by some real sacrifice, maybe in the form of philanthropy. The fact that we you know, have to rely on celebrities for philanthropy to chip in against a major public health disaster is a condemnation of the public health system. Like, that's not a workable solution. But still, all of these performances of gratitude are going to eventually start to ring hollow unless they're accompanied by some legitimate solidarity and some legitimate financial contribution to the cause. Because these are the folks who are in power to help others. And there are so many ways to help right now, in addition to getting the message out. I mean, people need supplies. People who are you know, laid off uh, need, need uh, paychecks so they can meet their rent and their basic expenses, uh, medical pr- protective equipment. Uh, there are so many different ways you can, you can chip in here. Childcare, uh, there are so many different ways you can chip in. So I don't really need a video of you clapping by yourself on the I would, and I would note that, for example, R&B singer Lizzo has donated lunches to hospitals. Rihanna and Jay-Z have donated $2 million to help undocumented workers and the children of health workers and first responders and the homeless. Uh, Kelly Ripa and Mark Consuelos gave a $1 million, again, to feed children. So there are a lot of people who have uh, given publicly at large amounts of money and others who have quietly been doing something and they're usually not the ones clapping alone on the balcony. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Now, in this time of uh, COVID-19 and pop culture, I've been fascinated about what exactly draws people in large numbers. Uh, Earlier, Rachel, you said one of the, the sad parts of this is that we're not together. We don't come together around certain events because we're not in the same space. But yet Netflix has two series that seems to have drawn a lot of people together. There's a lot of conversation about it, and they're very different. I want to play clips from each of them and and then get a response from the two of you about why you think these two very different series are connecting with people in this moment. So the first is from the series Love is Blind. Um, And the essence of it is is that uh, two people are separated in pods and they have a certain number of days to get to know each other without seeing each other. And then at the end, uh, they come together and they're supposed to get married in a certain period of time, some ridiculous period of time. But that's that's the essence of it. It's called Love is Blind. Here it is. My name is Cameron Hamilton. I'm 28 and I'm from Lee, Maine. As a scientist, I'm a believer in this experiment. It's removing the confounding variables of ethnicity, race, background, and the big one being physical appearance. And I should note that Cameron um, and uh, his partner in this uh, were the most popular couple, and um, he's white and she's black, so that's why he was saying that. The other one that just uh, dropped on Netflix that has Everybody talking about it. It's called Tiger King. The full title is Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness. Um, I, I, I did, It's about people with big cats, and there's some murder mystery involved in it as well. Here's a clip from Netflix's Tiger King trailer. 
not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. There are more captive tigers in the U.S. than there are in the wild throughout the world. Animal people are nuts, man. They're all crazy. I'm sure y'all got a story to tell. All right, Rachel and Michael, why are people drawn to, in huge numbers, we're talking millions and millions of people, and they're talking about it, uh, to these particular uh, series? Yeah, maybe we could start with Love is Blind. I mean, with Love is Blind, I mean, I think, you know, the yearning for connection at a time like this is is really, you know, uh, it's hard, it's hard to really overstate what that might be like. And I, and I think, you know, the effects of staying at home for folks who uh, are cohabitating with people, whether they're roommates or families, families with kids who are young, families with kids who are older, that's one conversation about kind about the the difficulty in managing those relationships and staying sane. And then there's a whole other conversation about social isolation for folks who live at home or don't have much of a social connection uh, right now. And that conversation had been going on prior to the virus and the, the various quarantines that that we've seen. And it's just been exacerbated, right? That kind of sense of alienation and, and lack of connection. And we need to pay attention to that as a public health issue, first and foremost. And so it only makes sense then that a, a really attractive show like Love is Blind is going to hit so huge at a time like this when everyone's kind of thirsting for not only romantic connection, but connection in, in general, and not to mention the kind of natural drama of the show and and the way that this first couple, Lauren and Cameron, seem to have, have gotten on is, is really kind of a heartwarming situation. Yeah, I mean, I can sort of see that, um, even though they're not allowed to see each other and people like pretend that that's the only thing that conveys racial identity. Um, and I feel like, you know, they can't see each other, but the show is organized around the fact that viewers can see them so that the 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 women on the show are dressed up, you know, sexualized in a way the men aren't, and they all have makeup and styled hair. And I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that there are still requirements about looks. So the show is sort of framed as a social experiment, but it's not like in a social mm. vacuum. And the women sort of need to be what's considered attractive on the show. Um and, you know, so it's interesting because they do go into these like little cubes where they talk to each other. And I guess, you know, right now people sort of feel like they're in those little cubes some of the time. Hmm. All right. Well, let's switch to Tiger King, which is very different. Uh, Michael, what, what say you about why people are obsessed with Tiger King? I think that's just escapism, honestly. I mean, <laughs> the characters are so the characters in, in particular, the Joe Exotic character is such a unique uh, type. I mean, uh, in some ways, I think it may kind of play to stereotypes of um, working class and impoverished white folks from some of the flyover, so-called flyover states in the country, because that's where it's sort of based. Um, so I, I think there's there's some of that going on. Um, but I think really um, the characters in the story, right, it's a true story. It's an incredibly unique story. We're also uh, in the midst of an, you know, let's not forget, we're in the midst of kind of an ecological crisis right now as well. So these questions about um, extinction, the lives of animals, um, and the ways that people interact with them, these are all actually central questions to the current sociopolitical moment that pertain to the virus and beyond. So 
I think for all of those reasons, the characters involved, the, the wildness of the crimes that were committed and, and the stories more generally, and then the ecological dimension to this story, uh, all of those things are sort of a perfect storm for Netflix right now. All right, Rachel, you get the last word. <laughs> okay, I absolutely agree with both of the things Michael just said, that like there, yes, there, it is relevant in terms of an ecological way. Um, but yes, that, you know, the, the way the characters are portrayed, I just, I will end by saying that many of the descriptions refer to the main character as mulleted, like wearing a mullet, right? That conveys a lot, so. It, it does. I thank you both for your always great insight uh, in this uh, age of COVID-19 and um, for showing us uh, what pop culture is doing right now. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kelly. Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Michael Jeffries is associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Coming up, once upon a time, the Lady Falcons would never have been competitors for the state's high school field hockey championship, but that was before their pact involving secret dark magic. Quan Berry's new novel is a tale of ordinary high school seniors who believe a little witchcraft might transform their game and their lives. We Ride Upon Sticks is our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It's fair to say the 1989 Danvers High School women's varsity field hockey team were never real competitors for the state finals. That was until the Lady Falcons conjured up a new plan for themselves, seeking sorcery first practice by young women in Danvers circa 1692. But can a secret pact, a sacred book, and a season of incantations lead them to victory. We Ride Upon Sticks is author Quan Barry's irreverent and endearing brew of 80s pop culture and small town life. It's her second novel and our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Quan Barry joins me now from Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, Quan. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you. Your book is uh, so fun. I didn't know what to expect, and it's <laughs> it's all unexpected, I will tell people, um, who will be looking for an interesting read. So let me start this way. You were born in Saigon, but you lived in Massachusetts. Was it this place that inspired this story? It definitely was, yes. I was raised on the North Shore of Boston in the town of Danvers, which back in 1692 was known as Salem Village. And many of the happenings that sparked the Salem Witch Trials of 1692 actually began in Salem Village. Um, and so because I grew up in that town, I've always known the history of what happened there, and I've always been fascinated by it. And so, yes, the book was very much inspired by my hometown. Now, I'm not sure that growing up in Danvers would necessarily lead one to write about witchcraft, but <laughs> in this case, it did. Um, yes. uh, and you put that together with uh, hockey, which was an interesting mix. So I'm curious, do you play hockey? Did you play hockey? So again, in Massachusetts, we have to make a, a really clear distinction between hockey, which people usually think of as just being ice hockey, and field hockey. But so that's yes. right. 
Yes, so field hockey is because I now live in the Midwest, and as I've discovered, field hockey tends to be a fairly East Coast endeavor. Um, Mm. But yes, I myself in high school played all four years, and um, our team, the Danvers High Falcons, we were actually pretty good. And uh, in 1989, we actually did make it to the state championship. I will not tell you what happened after that, but um, (laughs) yes, my love of field hockey, um, which is reflected in the book, is very much based in my real life. All right. Well, let's uh, start with your telling us who the Lady Falconers are, the varsity field hockey team in Danvers, who are the ensemble. It's really a cast, uh, Mm -hmm. an ensemble cast of characters in the book. So I knew when I was structuring the book that I wanted each chapter to focus on a different player. And basically, there are 11 members of a field hockey team. And so we do. So each chapter follows a different member of the team. And again, there's 11. So there's a lot of them. So maybe just the the important folks to know. Um, One is Abby Putnam. So Abby Putnam is actually a direct descendant of a famous witch accuser from 1692 named Anne Putnam. Anne Putnam, again, is an actual person and her family accused many people of being witches back in 1692. So Abby Putnam is actually one of the captains of the 1989 Danvers High field hockey team. She's bubbly. She's a go-getter. She's positive. Again, she's the team captain. And in many ways, she's also the team's conscious as well as being their leader. And then her co-captain is a girl named Jen Fiorenza. Uh, She and Jen have been best friends since, you know, growing up on the same street together, but they're very different personalities. Uh, Jen Fiorenza, for example, has, or I should say sports, the infamous claw. And readers uh, are introduced to the claw in the very first chapter. Basically, because it's 1989, Jen has a hairstyle, which was very popular back then, which is basically just big hair. So if you think of any of those hair bands from the 80s, that's basically what you can imagine when picturing Jen. And it's also true that as we learn over time is that perhaps maybe her, her hair, known as the claw, maybe has a life of its own in certain ways and has its own thoughts and things like that. So she's an important member of the team as well. And then just to name a few other ones, um, the team, there's also some uh, players of color on the team. So there's the center, that's the position that she plays. Her name is A.J. Johnson. She's an African-American character. Um, so we meet her and her family as well. Um, we meet a few other characters of color. There is Julie Min Kaling, who um, is uh, Vietnamese-American, but who's also um, a transracial adoptee. We also meet the character of Sue Yoon, who's a first-generation Korean-American. There's also uh, a boy who plays for them. Primarily in other countries, other Commonwealth countries, field hockey is only played by men, but here in, this, in the U.S. it's primarily played by women. Um, and so there is a boy on their team. And there's also a character named Becca Bajelica, who um, she's the girl who we all knew who um, developed physically early and she's always her whole life had to (laughs) sort of deal with what that has meant for her. And um, just two other characters that I can think of. Um, One is Mel Boucher, who was the French Canadian goalie. Um, And she sort of gets this whole ball rolling when she begins uh, turning to the darker powers to help give her more skills in the net. And then the last character that I can think of is a character named Little Smitty, um, who is basically just, she's the smallest person on the team, but she also over time sort of becomes like the foulest. But I think she rounds out the 11 members of the team. So people are going to hear that description and think, well, this is a YA, as in young adult 
novel, but actually it's not. Some of the reviewers said it's it's a kind of a novel for adults who like stranger things, mm. perhaps, mm-hmm. or books that way, or uh, pop culture shows in that same kind of genre. Mm-hmm. Because you have a lot going on here. Of course, you are paying attention to their age and time and and the game itself. But there are so many other parts of their stories that we learn through the book while this this, uh, team is going or trying to go toward the team finals. So first, let me have you read from the book. This is after they have decided to... uh, swear their allegiance to some dark arts, and um, they're beginning to win. So let's go to page eight. Mel shot us a sly wink from the stage, which was surprising because the Mel Boucher we knew was more likely to accidentally wink with both eyes. In the low wattage of the auditorium, her all-American Quebecois complexion looked radiant as any seraphim come to deliver the good news. And it was good news. For a team that most recently had posted a two and eight record, it was wicked good news. Who knew? You scrawled your name in a book and tied yourself up like a pot roast with a piece of smelly blue tube sock, and voila, the world was your oyster. Mel was our very own archangel of darkness. In time, we were all having what she was having. Even Avi Putnam signed on after some initial sputtering. And what Mel Boucher was having was nothing the Judeo-Christian world we inhabited would have smiled on approvingly. See, it turns out all those long, dark, hopeless seasons, we've been putting our chips on the wrong god. Honestly, of all places on earth, the town of Danvers should have seen us coming. That's my guest, Quan Berry. Her new novel is We Ride Upon Sticks, which uh, is a fictional story about a field hockey team in Danvers that decides to dabble in the dark arts. Now, one of the things that makes your book so interesting, and there was a little reference in that piece you just uh, read, Quan, mm-hmm. is that the 80s, the time period, is a character as well. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So in thinking about it, you know, I graduated in 1990, which means I really came of age in the 1980s. And I was interested in thinking about that time, but through the lens of 30 years later. I think oftentimes when people think about the 80s now, you know, they think about the funny clothes, they think about the ridiculous hair, they remember the music, you know, it's fun to have parties and to get together and just to sort of pretend that we're back in that time. But there are also a lot of negative things that happened in the 80s. And um, so, for example, the AIDS crisis obviously was happening. You also have the Central Park Five, which is happening then as well. And so I was interested in going back and thinking about the 80s, but again, in, in thinking about them through a more complicated lens. Oftentimes, you know, when you think of some of those movies, those John Hughes movies like Pretty in Pink, um, you know, 16 Candles, there's ways in which those movies have just not aged well. And so I knew that if I was going to set a book in the 80s, I couldn't just pretend that everything that happened in the 80s was fine. I had to, again, be more critical about it. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I chose to also make the 80s a very prominent, foregrounded aspect of the book. For those people who may not remember any of that time period, want to give them just a little listen to some of the pop culture references that you make in the book. Take a listen. After more than a decade of silence, he has come out of hiding. And the solid gold dancer, Darcel, Pam. Corner bird steps back for three. Who are you? I'm Batman. You a Heather? No, I'm a Veronica. I'll have what she's having.
Okay, so everybody should be on the same page with you now, Kwan. <laughs> I especially liked hearing the Solid Gold Dancers. The Solid Gold Dancers and the Miami Vice theme song were the two that I'm like, oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Great. That's the 80s for yes. sure. Yes. <laughs> I am speaking with Quan Berry, the author of a new novel, We Ride Upon Sticks, which is based in Danvers, Massachusetts, where she grew up. Now, you mentioned earlier that the team was a combination of folks, uh, mostly white, but there are some women of color. And I noted that the way that you introduced the women of color was really sort of gradual because as I began to read, I assumed the whole team was white. And Mm -hmm. then um, it became, with the exception of Sue Yoon because of her name. Mm -hmm. And then it became clear that each of them had a very interesting story about how they came to be living in Danvers Mm -hmm. and their relationships with the other women on the team. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how and why you chose to sort of... um, allow them to muse about their awareness of being different and how race played out in their lives? Interestingly, I actually went back to my high school uh, the first week of March, and it was, it was an amazing experience to be back, and there were so many students and teachers came out, and I, I marveled at, A, how the, the school was very different um, in many ways physically, and also as far as the actual demographic of the students who were there. So when I attended Dan- Danvers High and the Danvers High School and the Danvers School System in the 1980s, it's true, it was predominantly white. There were very few students of color back then, and now, I, you know, happily when I was back to visit, you know, I saw a lot more students of color and, and, and I was just pleased to see that. So it was important to me, though, in writing the book to um, to reflect, you know, my own upbringing in many kinds of ways. Um, and so it wouldn't have been true to the book to have it be a more diverse team because simply in the 1980s, that's just not what that space was. And so I wanted to reflect again what the space actually was when I was there and be truthful to that. Um, but I wanted to do it in a way that... Um, didn't necessarily foreground issues of race, but in which issues of race were definitely just a part of the fabric of things. And so I think that was one of the reasons why I chose to, again, gra- you know, I, I very much give a lot of thought to where I would put those characters um, in the story, like when we would sort of find out um, you know, their personal individual histories. Um, you know, I knew that I couldn't leave that to, till too late in the book because by then you, readers might have already thought other kinds of things. So I knew that I did have to, have to establish it fairly early, but not so early that one would come to think that it was the predominant um, theme in the book. But like I said, it was important to me to reflect um, what the Dammers of 1989 looked like. And so in thinking about it, you know, the characters, it's definitely something that's on their minds. They're definitely aware of the fact that they're different. But for many of them, there's issues, you know, that surround it. And I wanted to present those issues. But it's also, it's not something necessarily that holds them back. And if anything, right. it's something that as they um, begin to realize how they're different, it actually is a source of strength for them. And again, that's something that I wanted to have uh, be present in the work. So why don't you read from page 72? Page 72. All right. Listen, if Julie Kaling ever seemed like an oddball, it was for all the usual reasons. Her heavily Catholic faith, the series of ankle-length dresses she seemed to wear in rotation, like Smurfette, her closet an endless chain of the same dress, her not knowing cultural basics like that Alf ate cats or the lyrics to the song Safety Dance. Simply put, she was considered a weirdo because of the very real everyday markers that made her a weirdo. Simply, simply put, the fact that she was Vietnamese wasn't one of them. Honestly, we'd stopped noticing that part about her a long time ago. After all, Julie Kaling wasn't the only brown kid in a white family. 
There was Michelle Reed, a Korean adoptee on cross country, and Brian Vanderween, a Native American kid on the hockey team. A few other kids were scattered across all four grades, including a set of gorgeous biracial twins, a boy and a girl, who were sophomores and among the most popular kids in school. The race of these kids didn't matter. For all intents and purposes, they were seen as being white, just like the rest of us. Even Tyler Wagstaff, with his shoulder-length dreads, was considered a white kid. Taylor, whose real dad was Nigerian, though his white mom had remarried a white man. To us, it wasn't complicated. According to the most recent census, Danvers was hovering at about 95% white, 5% other. Being other wasn't what made you different. Having parents who were other was a whole other ballgame. Those kind of others included kids like Sue Yoon and A.J. Johnson, kids whose parents were the genuine article. Besides the Yoons and the Johnsons, there were a handful of other families in town. In the Gonzalez household, Mr. Gonzalez's deep Cuban accent made our mothers want to keep him talking. The Dengars from Belgium were never on time. There was even a family of actual Vietnamese boat people who lived over by the mall. Weekends, the kids ran around in traffic. Julie's father would purposefully never slow down when he saw the Nguyen children out with a soccer ball on four-lane Endicott Street. The kids are from Nam, he'd say. They've probably got more street smarts than anybody else in this town. That's my guest, Quan Barry. She's the author of her new novel, We Ride Upon Sticks. One of the things that uh, I think is interesting about the book, and of course, as you keep reading, you get it, that it's really not about the state championships. Of course, it is. That's the driving part of it. It's not even about witchcraft, so mm-hmm. to speak. But it's about, you know, what happens to these young women and what happens to the rest of the people they interact with in the town as the drive toward winning and the possibility of winning becomes very real for them. And I wanted you to speak to that because it feels like it's about women's friendship, really. Mm-hmm. I, that's that's what I came away with a little Ouija board twist to it. <laughs> yeah, no, very much so. So it's true, you know, it's not um, a witch book in the Harry Potter kind of sense of the term. And even in thinking about it being a sports book, you know, sports isn't front and center like it might be in a book like Friday Night Lights. Um, but still, I was very much interested in thinking about the idea of sports and women and how that kind of stuff worked together. Because usually when we see books about sports, they are about boy sports. They're about, again, football or basketball or what have you. You know, some years ago, we did have the movie Bend It Like Beckham. But really, since then, there haven't been that many books or movies that focus strictly on women's team sports. You know, if you think about now how well the women's uh, soccer team is doing, the national women's soccer team, like we should have more and more books written that look at, you know, uh, the effects of team sports and girls. So that was something that I was really interested in writing about. Um, But having said that, it's true that I was also interested in thinking about the idea of women's friendships um, and thinking about women's self-empowerment. I think it goes back also to the idea of witchcraft, is that for me, witchcraft in many ways has always been about female empowerment. Um, if you think about even historically in Europe, um, you know, during the Middle Ages, the kinds of women um, who were charged with being witches and who were eventually executed, you know, there were usually women who, for whatever reason, just stood out. Either they were too old or they didn't have children or they were too powerful or they were too loud or what have you. Again, there were people who were on the, on the edges of society. And so I've always seen witchcraft as being um, a space for women's self-empowerment at the end of the day, you know? And in many ways, I think that that's what these girls in the book are interested in. You know, they're interested in self-empowerment. They're obviously interested in winning a 
a championship, but they're also interested in, in figuring out who they are um, and where their true power comes from. And then just one final thing that I'll say that I was interested in in this book was the idea I was interested in creating characters who intentionally have no interest in being quote unquote ladylike. You know, when mm-hmm. I was growing up, it was a word that I would hear periodically from various women in my life, you know, that <laughs> I would be doing something and it wasn't ladylike or what have you. And, um, but I don't think there's a, there's a comparable term for boys. You know, when boys are growing up, I don't think they're ever told, oh, you know, they might be told to man up or things like that. So I suppose that there's a whole vocabulary for men that's different. But um, like I said, I was interested in girls and characters who were particularly sensitive to the idea of not being ladylike. Um, and how that could free them um, and empower them and the stories that result from that. So, yeah. I was uh, taken with the fact that you have a couple of uh, sort of mantras that just go all the way through the book, which allow the young women at various points to express their growing empowerment, if I can say. Um, One of them is a song by Tommy Farragher from the (laughs) Stay in the Live original soundtrack. It's called Look Out for Number One. Let's take a listen. Well, Quan, that sounds to me like the, the, the song of some women who are serious <laughs> about their sports. I, have to say, I was just dancing in my kitchen, so I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, was that a favorite song of yours? And just, so, it, just so everything about that song in the book is completely factual. So um, <laughs> something that has to come up, but the, there's only one character in the book who's actually based on an actual person, and that is the character in the book who is the coach. So the coach, Marge Butler. Marge Butler is actually based on our actual coach, who is this woman, Barb Damon. Barb Damon actually passed away last year um, in 2019 at the age of 81 or 82. Mm. And so... After she passed away, I went back into the manuscript and I pumped up various aspects of that character to make the the coach character in the book much more like Barb as an homage to her. And one of the things that Barb back in the day used to have us actually do before games is she always had that song on tape. And so every time before, you know, we'd be on the bus going to an away game or even if we were at home, you know, we would have somebody's boom box and we would throw the tape in. And of course, nobody else ever knew that song because it was never popular, but we would throw that tape in and we would like rock out to look up for number one. And so it was always the song that got us pumped. So, so yeah, every time I hear that, I'm like right back in like 1989, like, yeah, look out for number one. Um, so yes. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Quan Berry, the author of a new novel, We Ride Upon Sticks. Now, I'm curious about a decision you made in the writing, which is that there is an all-knowing narrator. Mm. All of the young women in the book have a moment on stage, as you said, to tell mm-hmm. their stories, for us to learn how they interact with the other women on the team and other people in the town of Danvers. But no one of them actually speaks. It's somebody else who's looking down from above. Why, why did you decide to do that? Mm-hmm. I don't want to give anything away, but it could be somebody else looking down from above. Hmm. Or it could be that my, my joke is that there's no I in team. And mm. so um, there are some pretty famous examples of books written from the first person plural point of view. One of them is The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. So in that particular book, it's a group of boys who are watching a family of girls. So it's a group of boys in the neighborhood who just simply watch to see what happens to this family. 
Um, and so I knew when I first started writing this book that I wanted to have it be a plural voice who tells the story, but I wasn't sure who the, who that voice belonged to. At first I thought that the, the we plural voice belonged to the entire school and that it was the school watching this team of field hockey players, but then that just got too unwieldy and it, it just didn't quite work. Then I had thought that maybe it would be the voice of the freshman team. So oftentimes when you play sports, you know, you have a freshman team, you have a JV junior varsity team, and you have a varsity team. And there's a way in which freshman girls often idealize the senior girls. I know that when I was a freshman, I knew everything about the, the, the senior girls who were captains and they just seemed like larger than life to me. So I thought that maybe it was the freshman team watching the varsity team and that it was mm -hmm. them telling the story. But then after a while, I, f I figured out pretty quickly that the, the first person plural voice actually to me, it does belong to the team itself. And so it's the team telling the story. And I think that in making that decision, it did a couple of things. A, it helped me, so because there, there is a witchcraft element to the book, there's something kind of um, witchy in a way about a collective we voice. It, it Maybe aspects aspects of a, of a coven in certain kinds of ways. You know, it allows them to go in and out of each other's minds. And so there's a little bit of like telepathy and things like that, which is a little bit unworldly, a little bit magical. So I, I like that aspect of it. And then again, like I said, it's just the idea that, you know, there is no I in team and it made sense to me that it would be the team that collectively tells their story. Well, you've gotten great reviews. Uh, somebody called it a playful romp through 80s suburbia, touching, hilarious, deeply satisfying. What do you want readers to take away from re-ride re upon sticks? Yeah. So I like books that you can read them and that they're fun and yet you actually still learn something. And so I hope that that's what's happening with this book. I like to make the joke that this book is kind of like a green smoothie. So <laughs> if you're drinking a green smoothie, you know, there's spinach in it, which hopefully you don't taste the spinach because you have like pineapple and blueberry and mango in it, right? So in this book, I'd like to think that um, while it's funny and humorous and fun to think about the 80s and things like that, there is still social commentary that's in the book, right? So we learn things about, you know, girls and women and body image. You know, we learn things about consent. You know, there's, there's conversations that the girls have about their boyfriends and about consent. You know, there's obviously the um, issues about race that are still present in the book. Um, everything that we actually learn about the historical Salem witch trials is actually factual. You know, I actually include the names of everybody who was actually hung or pressed to death. You know, it was important to me to include those names of those people. So like I said, I, I feel like it, it is fun, a fun romp, and yet at the same time, you don't realize that, oh yeah, I'm also learning <laughs> things. Um, and so that was really important to me as well. Well, I learned a lot. Thank you so much for joining me today. Fabulous. Thanks so much for having me. Quan Berry is the author of We Ride Upon Sticks, her second novel, and our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at wgbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.